I'm going to read from John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 16 to 23. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, can you remember back, for some of us, decades ago, when you were trying to work out what you are going to be? When I grow up, I'm going to do this for a job. Do you remember that time? It's a very difficult time of life. You uh, dream of being an astronaut, and you end up cleaning the toilets in McDonald's, that type of stuff. It's hard knowing what you want to do when you're young. It's difficult, isn't it? Because there are so, so many options. There's the modern invention of the careers advisor, the expert who can help you. There's the uh, careers fair where you can go into a hall and everyone's literally shouting your name if you've got certain qualifications. Come here, we'll give you this. There's online surveys that produce very little, but they give you lots of options, says the cynic in me. It's hard, isn't it, knowing what you want to do when you grow up. I want to be like my mum. I want to be like my dad. Well, this, this struggle to decide what you're going to be in the future is a modern phenomenon. Especially if you're in the West, it's a modern thing. But if you're in the East or uh, in, in history past, then really you would just do, you'd follow in the family craft, wouldn't you? You would do what your dad did. You would do what your mum did. Now, uh, Joe saw this slide and says, are you saying that every man has to have a beard? That's not what I'm saying. But uh, so my dad was a baker, so I became a baker. My dad was a farmer, so I became a farmer as some sort of engineering or trade craft. Therefore, I'm going to do that as well. Sons would follow their fathers. Mothers would follow or be followed by their daughters and so on. That's where the word uh, apprenticeship comes from. Now, that appears in many different guises in the modern generation. But an apprenticeship used to be you would follow intently someone for a period of years so that you would be able to produce what they produce very skillfully. So pottery, metalwork, cookery, seamstress, that kind of stuff. Now, on reading of our passage this morning, hopefully you thought, golly, this is loaded, because it really is. But on first reading verses uh, 17 and following, it looks like it's a description of a father and son apprenticeship scheme. John gives us in these nine sentences an executive summary of the whole ministry of the Lord Jesus. So if you're new to Christian things, this may be helpful just to give you a a flyby. Here's nine sentences that, that describe to you everything that Jesus did, but in nine sentences. 
Look at sentence 16 to 18. Jesus was high up. He was high up. He was equal with God. And then he began a journey. Sentence 19 and 20 describes Jesus who was high up, verses 16 to 18. Verses 19 to 20, Jesus came down. He came down. He became subject. He became submissive to the will and plan of his father. Then you've got sentences 21 to 23. At a certain point in history, having completed a work, Jesus returned to his father so that now he receives all the honor that his father has. He receives a name that's even higher than the one he had before because he is judge of all the earth. Now those sentences, nine sentences, is a bit like saying, I'm going to have everything you've got on top of my steak. I don't care if it goes, I just want the lot. I want an ice cream, there's an ice cream. Or one of those uh, soda machines that you have at Five Guys where you just press all the buttons and it all goes in. That's a little bit like these nine sentences. And behind these sentences in their density is a clarity of teaching that we find quite offensive in the modern world. It's a Christian principle that we see in the life of Jesus. Here's the principle. It's very unpopular, but it's very true. The way up is down. The way to gain life is to give up your life. The way for true happiness is not found in a book or at the bottom of a, a wine bottle. It's not even to seek your own happiness. The way to true happiness is found by seeking happiness of other people. It's a principle. The way up is down. The way to lose, uh, gain life is to lose it. Let's look at why that principle works and then what it looks like. Why does that principle work? Well, let, let's look carefully at these sentences. I haven't given you a flyby. Let's go a little bit slowly. Look at the life of Jesus, point number one. It works because of the life of Jesus, this principle. The way up actually is down, turning the values of the world on its head. Look at how this works. In verses 16, 17, and 18 that we looked at last week, Jesus is claiming equality with God. And straight away, the Jewish listeners want Jesus dead. They're kind of creating plans to do away with Jesus. Why is that? Verse 16, Jesus says that he completes the same work as his father did at creation. Verse 17, Jesus speaks of the Father, not just as the Father, as every Jewish person would know him, but as my Father. There's a pointedness to the communication of Jesus. What you know about remotely from the Hebrew Scriptures, I know personally, says Jesus. Jesus is not equal with God as a competing deity. I wonder who's going to win. Jesus is not equal with God as a, another God. Jesus has always been equal with God. It's not a fight. It's not a battle. It's not a competition. Jesus has never been separated before the incarnation from his Father. He's always been God. He's always been equal with God. And John, through many, many different ways, wants us to gain this great truth in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. He's called God himself throughout the gospel. You can see it on the slide here. He bears the titles of God. I am. It's a title from the Old Testament that God gives himself. He has the rights of God in his ministry. And yet, for all the equality he has with his father, he's submissive to his father. It's God the Father. Told you it was loaded. It's God the Father who initiates who plans, 
who commands, who strategizes. And it's God the Son who responds obediently, perfectly, performing his Father's will, receiving his Father's authority. Now, we could just stop there and worship God for who he is and praise the Son for who he is. But there are four Gar words that are hidden. Gar is a Greek word that means for or because. There's this huge claim, verses 16, 17, and 18. Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus Christ is equal to God. And then Jesus, and John records for us, four truths that reinforce and explain this great claim that when you see Jesus, you see the perfect revelation of God. Here are the four. Four sentences from verses sentence 19 to 23. The first gar, the first because, the first for or moreover is found halfway through sentence 19. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Verse 19, because. What's the first because? What's the first reason? Because the son, Jesus, always and only does what he sees the father doing and what pleases the father It's impossible for Jesus Christ to operate independently, selfishly, without his Father's will. He can't operate against what he sees his Father doing. He can only do, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the will of the Father, what delights the Father's heart, what brings him pleasure and delight. So he wants to act submissively and be subject to the will of the Father. Jesus is equal to the Father. He can only see what the Father sees. He can only do what the Father does. And that's his delight, is to bring pleasure and joy to the Father by doing what he does. It's this great claim of Jesus' divinity. I'm equal with my Father. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Verse 20. How is this possible? Because the Father loves the Son. And shows him all he does. How is it possible for Jesus Christ to honor God the Father? Because the Father delights in explaining and revealing all that he does to his Son. Let's go very closely and carefully and slowly. The love of the Father to the Son, from the Father to Jesus, is displayed by the Father continuously disclosing all that he does to Jesus Christ his Son. And the love of the Son is displayed for the Father in perfect obedience at the disclosure of all the Father shows the Son. The more he sees, the more he delights in obeying. And this is all working towards the cross of Jesus. As Jesus perfectly obeys his Father, he is revealing the nature, the character, the very heart of God. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, says Jesus. But it's not just revelation of character and nature. It's also an atoning work for the sins of the world. And so verse 19 and into 20, even greater than what has just happened. That's the healing of the blind man. Verses 1 to verse 9 of chapter 5. I'm going to do even greater things. What's that? I'm going to give life to dead people. We've been expecting that from John chapter 1. And I want you to see, not just I give life, but also God's glory is seen that I'm the judge of all the earth. So that you might marvel, chapter 10, verse 38, at God's plan for the world. 
That's the second because. Why is God seen in Jesus in his divine nature? Because of who he is. And he delights to do what his Father does. And how is that possible? Because the Father's revealed it to the Son. And here's the third because in verse 21. Here's an example of the Son doing nothing beyond what the Father reveals to him. There's a parallelism here. Look at verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to all he's pleased to give it to. Now this is back to the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, you can look it up. It says, to give life is something only the Creator God can do. No one can give life to dead people other than the Creator of the universe. And so then Jesus has the audacity, because it's true to say, just as God gives life to dead people, so will I. It's another claim to the divinity of Jesus. I've not just come to heal people, verse 6 of John chapter 5. I've come to give life, and I've come to give life in the full. So if the Son does all the Father gives him to do, it's not merely, merely revelation of character and nature, it's also salvation. It's life to dead people. And here's the fourth because, the fourth reason that Jesus is divine, Jesus is truly God. Verse 21, the Father and Son are parallel in that they give life. But verse 22, there's a difference. The Father in his uh, eternal past plan has given authority to his Son at the end of history to judge the world. And even the judgment of Jesus Christ is not separate from the plan of the Father. It's something that's been organized in history past. Why? So that even in the justice of God, Jesus is operating to delight his Father, to bring him glory and renown. This is back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Opening the, uh, the books of history, the Ancient of Days. That's something only God could do. Daniel was saying only the Creator can stand and sit in judgment on his creation. So that must mean that Jesus Christ is God. He's equal in his divine nature to his Father and to the Holy Spirit as well. Now, what's the point? Why has Jesus received the authority from his Father to judge the whole of the world? Verse 23 tells us why. The Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. You must honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Why has God the Father given this responsibility to God the Son? So that we might honor him. Because God the Father is passionate about the glory of God, the renown of God, the worth of God, being felt and enjoyed and known throughout all history and all creation. And so he says, here is my Son, honor him. Jesus Christ does not just accept worship, he demands worship. He doesn't just demand some kind of worship. He demands worship just as the Father demands worship. Now let's take a breather. That's a bit of steak that you can enjoy for the next few decades of your life. How does Christianity therefore fit in with world religions? Because if this is who Jesus is, Jesus is not a demigod like Moana, which is a bad film. He's equal with God in worth and quality and nature and renown. So how does Christianity fit into 
for religions of the world, like when you're trying to stuff clothes into a suitcase or, or pack up a house into a removal van that's never quite big enough. This is where people get very uncomfortable. People say, well, all religions are the same. All religion has a teacher, a prophet, someone that has spoken with God or God has spoken to them. And they say, here's the moral behavior that you need to complete. Here's the standard that you need to reach. Here's the money that you need to give and the place you need to go to meet with God. And you can take Buddha out of Buddhism and it still stands. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and it still stands. But you cannot take Christ out of Christianity because Christ is Christianity. He doesn't fit into any other scheme. He will not go into any other uh, structure of religion. His claims are too great. His nature is too vast. His glory is too magnificent. He's more than just a man. Look at verse 23. A great man does not say, you must honor me like the Father. A deluded man says that, or a divine man says that. A great man does not say, verse 21, I alone can give you life. A deluded person says that, or a divine person can say that. So what's going on? In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul takes this great theme of the journey from heaven to earth and from earth back to the heavens of Jesus. And he says this, it's all a question of honor. It's all a question of honor. It's not a scene from Gladiator saying, uh, honor him. But it is a scene from history that says, here is my son, honor him. And the passion of Jesus Christ is the honor and glory and renown of his father that he willingly went to any length so that his father would be glorified. We've decided to live for our own honor, our own renown, our own capital, and our own claims and comfort. We've decided not to give honor to the king of the universe, the captain of our lives. We'd rather have honor ourselves. And the penalty for that is, as the Bible describes, the penalty of sin is, is death. And what an unpleasant truth that is, but it's true. And when Jesus Christ, the King of the cosmos, left the glory of his Father behind, he came down and he died upon a tree, bearing the, our sin upon his shoulders, taking the dishonor that we have given to him upon himself. The greatest disaster of history was actually the greatest triumph, <clears throat> says the gospel. Jesus Christ came down to earth, he was killed in weakness, and he was raised in triumph. And he seats in authority seated in authority at the right hand of his father. It happened at the first Christmas when Jesus Christ descended from the heavens to earth. And he ascended at the first Easter where he's the judge of all things. And this is how the Apostle Paul puts it. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his honor so that his father might become honored. He became a servant. He became obedient to death. On a cross, and therefore God exalted him, that's the journey, and gave Jesus Christ the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is not just your creator now, he's also your redeemer. And that means that he has given a new name, Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee shall bow, should bow, and will bow. That's the life of Jesus. That's why the principle works. The way to maturity, the way to peace, the way to joy, 
The way to contentment is to do what Jesus Christ did. And what did he do? He submitted his heart to the will of his Father. That's the principle. The way up is down. Now, what does that mean? Four applications that we can grasp. Why? What does it show? The principle of Christian living, something that Jesus Christ modeled from the beginning of his life to the end of his life and is modeling still today, is the submission of his will to the will of the Father. How do we do that? Here are four applications. If that's the why, what does that look like? Because it's jolly hard to do what Jesus did. It means submitting to God's will is wrestling. Look at this picture, boys on the screen and girls from Rooted. I thought about putting some other pictures up, but they were most descriptive. Let the reader understand. So um, this is what it means to submit to the will of the Father. A lot of people love to hear what the Bible says. God loves me. God is for me. God accepts me. God forgives me. But when you get near to this truth, that because of who Jesus Christ is, there's nothing he cannot ask of you, people draw back. He's the king. He's the ruler of everything. That means he's your king as well. That means you should live under his authority, that you should seek to live for his pleasure, that your will should come second to his delight and renown and favor. When it gets near to this truth, it's a submission wrestling match because we're control freaks. We want to have things our way. To willingly submit to Jesus is scary. To willingly submit to Jesus well, I don't want to do that. I'd rather have control of my life. It's hard. It's a wrestling match. And it was a wrestling match with the perfect son of God. Remember the night before Jesus went to die for the sins of the world? He was wrestling with the will of his father. You don't hear Jesus Christ saying glibly, I can't wait to suffer. I just can't wait. I can't wait to go to the cross. Jesus has nothing of the sort. He's wrestling with the will of his Father as he gazes into the cup of God's wrath. And yet he says, not my will, but yours. It's a wrestling match. Jesus Christ says, my soul is sorrowful, even unto death. Because Jesus is looking into the cup of the wrath of God for the sin of the world. And yet he does not pull back. He's experiencing the weight and the magnitude of what's to come. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours. It's he's wrestling. And he says, I want your renown, your name, your glory, your fame to be known. And that is so uttermost in my priorities. It's so uttermost in my internal CPU of my heart that I will do anything to bring more glory and more renown to your name. I'll go to the cross. Even unto death. Not my will, but his be done. It's a wrestling. Submission is wrestling. Secondly, though, submission is a decision. It's a decision to trust. It's, it's your will against God. Will you submit to his? But it's also a decision to trust. When the Bible talks about God's will, it's not talking about a kind of a resignation. It's a decision. It's active. It's daily to say, I trust you. I put my life into your hands. You see all of history. You know what's best for me, even if I'm finding your will in my life so hard. There are two parts to God's will in the Bible. There's uh, the command will of God that the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. 
not kind of a negotiation. God is saying, you should not do it. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't covet, and so on. That There's the revealed will of God, the command will of God. Do not do that. Do this. But then there's the second part of God's will, which is the planned will of God, which is God has a plan for our lives, a blueprint for all of history, and it's for our best that we come under God's authority. And every single day, there's a battle in my heart and in yours, wrestling with God on the mat of my heart to say, no, you can see what's best for me. I cannot. Not my will, but yours be done. Okay. Well, I see it's a decision, but it's still really hard. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Here's the key. Here's the key to wrestling and to trusting. Point number three. Submission means struggling for the right vantage point. I spoke this morning to someone who's been up on the mountains recently. There's, there's nothing like it when you're up on the mountain and you just see grandeur and greatness. But, but rooted, this is for you. Can you remember back to your seven-year-old self when you are on the mat, when you're playing? Just imagine you're back and you're playing with a Lego or a Tonka car, something like that, an airplane, and it breaks. You snap it. Someone comes in, perhaps a mom or a dad or someone looks after you, and they put their big size 10 or 11 boots and they crush your truck or your airplane. And your eyes are filled with tears. Your world has ended. But then in comes that loving parent who's just gone to the front door. They've opened an envelope and they said, you'll never guess what. You have inherited 20 million pounds. but you keep on crying because the truck is still not fixed. The plane's wings have broken off. There's something that has happened in your life and your world has ended. doesn't make you feel better that you've just inherited 20 million pounds because you're down on the floor when you should be up thinking of how you can wisely use that resource. That's the story of our life, isn't it? It's the proper vantage point. That's the root of our problems, not our financial concerns, and they're real. Not our relational heartache, and that's true. It's not our personal needs or even our health. It's the vantage point that we're struggling to get. Jesus Christ looked at the most mind-blowing, gut-wrenching, staggering pain in all of history, and he said because he had the right vantage point, I will suffer for several hours in unimaginable pain. But I will suffer for those hours in order to gain a glorious inheritance for my father. George Matheson was a hymn writer in the 19th century. He was a 20-year-old man, and he found the love of his life, and he got engaged to this girl. But sadly, his sight began to deteriorate, and he began to get more and more partially sighted, and eventually he became blind. When he told his fiancée that he was going blind, she broke off the engagement and walked off to live a different life. In his partial sightedness, he had written not one but two theological books. In the academy, he was trying to help Christian pastors and ministers And it was said of him that if he had retained his sight, he would be a significant force for the church in Scotland. But he was all alone. God provided for him a special providence. His sister, who came along and lived and supported him for a few decades of his life. He left teaching in the academy and he became a pastor 
And he preached to 1,500 people each week for many years of his life, even though he was blind. In 1882, his sister fell in love, and she prepared to get married herself. The evening before the wedding, George's whole family had left to get ready for the celebrations next day. He was all alone and facing the prospect of living the rest of his life without anyone to help him. On top of this, I'm sure he was reflecting on what might have been two decades earlier if his fiancée had stuck with him. In the darkness of one evening, and in five minutes, five minutes, he wrote his only hymn that never required one stroke of the editor's pen. It's called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Here's the last verse or so. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and in the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. He writes in five minutes. He writes in five minutes. My hopes died, but on the far side of hope, there are new hopes, and there is and will be a resurrection. I'm going to submit to my Father's will. My hopes have died, but there's hope of a resurrection. If you know the God of the Bible and you're wrestling in your will, determined to trust him one day at a time, well, you know how prayer works. In prayer, it's a fight for the vantage point. And in prayer, we see that God always gives us what we would have asked for if we could see everything that he sees. Last point, submission in the end is joy. It's wrestling, it's trusting, it's fighting for the vantage point, but in the end it's joy. There are some of you here probably who have just realized this morning that Christianity is not about living a moral life. It's not about measuring up. It's not about giving money away or going to the right place or things like that. Look at verse 23. Christ is revealed as the judge. God the Father has given the responsibility to God the Son, Jesus Christ, the awesome authority to judge us. But we're only judged on this one thing, whether or not you honor the Son. Verse 23, Jesus Christ is calling for something completely radical. You either have to reject Jesus or you have to worship him and honor him. He's the center of your life and you live for his passion and for his glory. That's what he's demanding of you. The Jewish leaders, back in verse 18, as you look up, the Jewish leaders knew what he was demanding. And they decided, rather than giving him honor, we want him dead. The disciples knew what Jesus was demanding. And they literally threw their life overboard and followed him. Jesus doesn't allow people to be moderate. There's a polarity to the response that people have to Jesus. There are many areas in our life, aren't there, where we're not submitting to the will of God. We're not trusting him day by day. You're sitting back and you're waiting for him to show you why. And when you see why, then you'll submit. In other words, you don't want to submit at all. The life of Jesus models for us a pattern. Here's the pattern. The way up is down. The way to find yourself is to be willing to lose yourself. There's always suffering before lasting glory. But submission always ends in joy. We're going to come around the table now. 
And I'm going to encourage you to reflect on your response to Jesus. Are you like the disciples who, responding to Jesus, were prepared to give him anything? There's nothing you cannot ask of me. Matthew, the tax collector, who left his business and followed Jesus. Are you, are you like that? Or are you, this morning, like the Jewish leaders who say, actually, I'd rather Jesus was dead? If even this morning you can come to Jesus for the first time as the one who seeks and saves the lost. Why don't you do that this morning as we come around the Lord's table so you can celebrate it as Jesus Christ is your king, not just your creator, but he's your savior, even for the first time.